bite-sized birthday biography podcast. I'm your host, Hannah Mira. This is a daily podcast which shines a spotlight on a person born on this day at some point in history somewhere in the world who made a positive lasting impact. Today, October 4th, we're going to celebrate the birth and life of Chief Lucy Taia Eads, the first female chief of the Kaw Nation. In order to talk about Chief Lucy, we must first delve into the history of the Kaw Nation and its people. Like all Native American nations and their people, the Ka people were subjected to historical, continual, and systematic brutality and forced isolation and assimilation by the U.S. government. Our human history today so deserves to be honored because not only was she a chief and the first female chief of the Ka Nation, but she devoted her life to helping her tribe who had endured so much abuse and hostility from the U.S. government. And that's why it was so frustrating for me to find such little information on her. There's the briefest outline of her life, regardless of the source. Very little on her childhood, virtually nothing on her years as a chief, and then this huge blank jump from chief to death with no details in between. The tidbits that I could find were amazing, but they were few and far between. I can't give the full detailed portrait that I want to because her life was so scantily recorded. But because I believe that she does deserve to be honored, even with such sparse biographical details, we will be talking about her today, but the bulk of our episode will be on the history of the Ka people, as there simply wasn't enough of her life information available to create the rich narrative I would have liked to give her. The Ka Nation, also known as Kansa or Kanza, are a tribe which originated in the Midwest, mostly in Kansas and Oklahoma. They had been one of the five Dahia tribes that migrated west from Ohio Valley in the early to mid-17th century. Each tribe split off at a certain point in the journey, with the Ka people stopping on the Missouri River in the northeastern part of Kansas. Their migration had probably no roots in choice, and it was a reluctant but forced consequence of the settlement and expansion of white people on the Atlantic coast. The first documented encounter between the Ka Nation and a white person was by French explorer Bergmont, who happened to come across the large village that they were residing in on a bluff overlooking the Missouri River in what is now Donovan, Kansas, a now tiny unincorporated area in the very most northeastern corner right on the border of Nebraska and Missouri. In 1780, the tribe left this area and they moved up the Kansas River. The abandoned village continued to be a landmark for explorers and settlers and was even mentioned in the writings of Lewis and Clark. For the next 50 years, the Caw would live on the Kansas River in what uh, was to be known as Manhattan in northeastern Kansas at some point. Their move was partially inspired by the need to be closer to buffalo herds as their main source of food was shifting from crops to bison. The new location also put them in close proximity to a lot of animals whose hides and furs were a valuable trading commodity with the French, who provided them with various supplies, including firearms. The move also put them in closer proximity, unfortunately, to the Pawnees, which were their sworn enemies. Lewis and Clark, um, upon once again encountering the tribe, estimated that the constant wars with the Pawnees had reduced the Ka tribe to about 1,500 people, only 300 of which were men, since their warriors were always killed first. George C. Sibley, an adventurer and later Indian agent, described the Ka as being, quote, governed by a chief and the influence of the oldest and most distinguished warriors. They are seldom at peace with any of their neighbors, except the Osage, with whom they, are, they appear to have a cordial and lasting relationship. The Kansas are a stout, hardy, handsome race, more active and enterprising even than the Osage. 
They are noted for their bravery and their heroic daring. The Ka spent half the year in their village by the Kansas River, during which time the women dedicated their efforts to raising corn, and the other half of the year they spent migrating through Kansas, trailing buffalo and living temporarily in teepees. Sibley also added, rather snarkily, that the Ka were, quote, homeless wanderers, and such is the stubbornness of their nature that they will rather remain as they are. Indeed, they were a proud people and one of the tribes noted for its resistance to westward expansion, white encroachment, and systematic land division by the U.S. Bureau of Indian Affairs. Once the Louisiana Territory was purchased in 1803, things started to get really rough for the Ka people. Between their warring enemy neighbors and the push of white settlers to occupy their beautiful and fertile land, they were losing land by the day. In 1825, they begrudgingly ceded a huge chunk of land in Kansas and Missouri to the U.S. government. In return, the U.S. promised to pay the tribe $3,500 a year for 20 years. This money was either usually late or ended up in the pockets of the notoriously crooked Indian Affairs agents. The cause lost 500 of their people to smallpox epidemics in the late 1820s and early 1830s. Further infighting also fractured the tribe, and it broke into four sub-tribes, some of which favored clinging to traditional practices, and some favoring Chief White Plume's desire to work with the U.S. government. The tribe was also dealing with the delineation of their bloodline as more and more French settlers began to take Ka wives and produce mixed offspring, which were not accepted in white society and were inclined to be viewed a bit askance by the Ka. Things went from bad to worse in 1844 with a horrific flood that knocked out all of their crops and left the group with literally nothing. They sold their last 2 million acres to the government in exchange for $200,000 and a 256,000 acre reservation. They thought they were finally getting a fertile and ideal area where they could live in peace, but this was not the case. The land, which is now near a city called Council Grove in central Kansas, was indeed beautiful with lush forest and ample water and wide prairies for grazing. But it was also a common campground for the roughneck merchants and traders passing by on the Santa Fe Trail. So the Ka people faced physical assaults by these blockheaded idiots whenever they encountered them. White men continued to invade and destroy the Ka's new homestead, and over the next 15 years, it was reduced from its original 256,000 acres down to just 80,000 acres. Things got even worse during the start of the Civil War in 1861, as the Ka people and other tribes were now suddenly essential to the government as they were an untapped resource of skilled warriors who could be forcibly conscripted. 21 of the Ka men who went to war never came back, and as their numbers were already so minimal, this diminishment was catastrophic. The Civil War eventually ended, but the war against the Ka and other tribes did not. White settlers continued to push for the exile of all Native Americans, and by 1873, the white man won. Big shocker there. And the last remnants of the Ka packed up what few things they had, and the last 533 members of the Ka Nation migrated to what is now Kay County, Oklahoma. Things continued to deteriorate, and over the next seven years, half the tribe died due to a variety of contagious diseases. They tried to eke out a living by leasing their land to white men for agricultural development and fur trapping and hunting. In 1884, trying to create some sense of representation and unity, they elected a chief counselor, an elder named Chief Washunga of the Ka. However, by 1888, the number of full-blooded Ka's was down to 188 people. 
there was a lot of forced assimilation by the white communities, including marriages between the Ka and white people. The Ka were becoming increasingly intermeshed, and by 1910, there was only one old woman in the whole tribe who wasn't speaking English, and over 80% of the tribe was reading and writing English. The worst and final blow would come from one of their own, Charles Curtis. Charles Curtis was a congressman of Ka ancestry and the future first Native American vice president under uh, President Hoover. He decided that the federal government needed even more control over the Native Americans and that total assimilation into white society was exactly what his people needed. In 1902, at Curtis's insistence, the U.S. Congress abolished the Ka tribal government and the allocation of the reservation and divided all the lands between individual Ka nation people. There were only 247 remaining Ka left at that point, and they each got 405 acres. Most Ka's ended up selling their land or losing it one way or the other. By 1945, only 13% of the originally allocated land was still owned by the Ka nation. Chief Washuga died in 1908, and the remaining cause had no leadership until 1922, when today's human in history, Lucy Taia Eads, Washuga's adopted daughter, was named their first and only female chief. Lucy's path to this point was, like her tribes, not an easy one. She'd been born in a teepee in 1888 alongside Beaver Creek in Oklahoma. Her mother was Lizette Betrand, a half-Ka, half-Potawatomi woman. Her father was Little Taie, a Kaw man. She also had a younger brother named Emmett. When she was four, she and her little brother became orphaned when both of her parents starved to death. Her and Emmett were adopted by Chief Washuga as he was the head of the tribe. After studying nursing at the federally run Haskell Indian College in Kansas, she moved to New York City, and it was there that she married Herbert Edward Kimber in 1908, the same year that her adopted father, Chief Washuga, died. Lucy and Herbert would go on to have three daughters. Their marriage ended a few years later, leaving her free to remarry uh, John Eads in 1913. They would end up having six more children. So there was this giant gap between Chief Washuga's death in 1908 and the election of a new tribal chief almost 14 years later. In November of 1922, Lucy, as the chief's adopted child, was elected by the eight council members. She was chosen not only because she was his adopted heir, but also because the council wanted someone who was a full-blooded Ka, but could also speak on behalf of the tribe while navigating the intricacies of white society. Two years into her term, she approached the federal government in the hopes of gaining official government recognition for the Ka Nation. The government decided this was a violation of the allotment agreement, and they turned her away. She continued to fight for the best interests of her tribe, dealing with shady Indian agents, negotiating treaties, and juggling the rat's nest of land rights issues. In 1928, she was re-elected, but this turned out to be a futile gesture as the Ka government was abolished that year. It would not be resurrected until 1936 with the passing of the Oklahoma Indian Welfare Act, which was a federal act aimed at rebuilding Native American tribes, returning land, and restoring their cultural integrity and helping them to reconstruct their governments. Following her time as tribal chief, she devoted her life to nursing and raising her nine children. She died in 1961 at the age of 73 in Pahuska, Oklahoma. My sources today were Wikipedia, Kansas Historical Society, the Ka Nation website, and the Kansas Chief Lucy website. Thank you so much for joining me for our birthday celebration of the birth and life of Chief Lucy Taya Eads. 
please join me tomorrow, October 5th, when we celebrate the birth and life of Maya Lin, the 21-year-old architect who designed the Vietnam War Memorial. See you then.